Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. But if you take and you convert that, you're talking about carbon capture in a way where it's related to things that you use every day, it's an easier conversation to have. It's a tangible good. It engages people to start talking about what carbon capture can actually relate to. And I've said this before uh, in other conversations, that is not to discount the importance of large-scale CCUS and the work being done by like, you know, carbon upcycling technologies and carbon cure and uh, carbon engineering where they're doing large scale. They're converting into things that are difficult to talk about in general settings. So we're the, I don't know, for lack of better phrase, uh, the arm candy of the carbon capture world because we provide, you know, kind of sexy products that are easier to digest. Alrighty, we are live. Jason, thanks so much for being on the Keep Cool Show. Thanks for having me. So why don't we um, dive right in and get folks up to speed with what you are working on at CleanO2, and then we can maybe backtrack a little bit later on your climate story. But yeah, what's the 60 or 90 second pitch on the business? Sure. Uh, so our company is focused on the decarbonization of the heating industry while providing consumer goods that are made from recycled carbon. Brilliant. And how did you get started on specifically decarbonizing the heating industry? What kind of background of yours led you to tackle that problem? In 2005, I was working as a heating technician for an HVAC company, and I spent a considerable amount of time in mechanical rooms. And I just started asking the question of where is my career going? And I'd been an innovative person so I thought, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to roll up my sleeves and invent something. But one of the problems that I noticed with the industry was that it was focused largely on maximizing efficiencies of heating appliances rather than dealing with carbon emissions directly. And that was kind of their answer when I asked them, like, you know, I see a lot of these news articles that are pointing at the need for us to reduce carbon emissions. But when you talk to these manufacturers, their response was, well, we'll just maximize efficiencies, which doesn't really answer the question because you're still using natural gas or propane as a heat source. So awesome to be you know, as efficient as you possibly can. But if you're still creating GHGs, it seems like we haven't really solved the problem. So originally there wasn't a business model. It was a case of my colleague and I, who I met years later after I started asking questions was, hey, why don't we go and see if we can create something like in a garage and, you know, get our 15 minutes of fame and like popular mechanics and uh, <laughs> just show people that, you know, solutions can come from anywhere. And as soon as we started working on it together, we noticed that there was actually an opportunity for a business model. It just morphed. It's like one pivot after the other over the course of 16 years, uh, now going 17 years to the point now, here we are, all that, you know, over a decade later with the world's first microscale carbon capture system that's been commercialized. This isn't a, you know, it's not a bench scale, theoretical CAD model of something that could be deployed. We're, we've had some systems out in the field for over seven years at this point. Fantastic. Got it. And yeah, what does the kind of uptick in installations look like over the last decade or so? It's great to hear that you're already, you know, this is already out there in the field capturing CO2 from some of these appliances, but Kind of what's the growth look like and how many different locations or appliances are you already working with? It's been good. Yeah, it's been really good. It's never enough though, right? And we want to talk about rapid decarbonization. And historically, the heating industry has been very slow to adopt change. So you're kind of having to overcome some 
deeply entrenched ideas in the heating industry where change is not always welcomed. But on the same hand, there are a lot of companies out there that are really trying to improve their ESG portfolios. They're trying to have a meaningful impact in reducing emissions and they, they're doing whatever they can. And that puts us in a very unique position because as I mentioned, you know, we're the only commercialized piece of equipment out there. So if you want to have a direct impact on reducing greenhouse gases, you got to go through us. So that's been very favorable. We work with a number of gas utilities in three different countries, Canada, the US and Japan. We've got installations here in Canada in two, soon to be three different provinces. We just actually launched our very first install in Minneapolis with an additional nine units that are going to be launched in the coming weeks and months after. We have a project in Oregon with Northwest Natural. Uh, The one in Minneapolis is with Centerpoint Energy. And uh, we're hoping to be able to work with some good folks down in California at SoCal Gas here sometime this year. So we've got some great traction. And then, of course, Working with Tokyo Gas in Japan has been really rewarding. They're a very supportive team that's helping us design better and try to overcome some of the problems with the early stages of development of our tech. So we're able to uh, see some really strong potential for the deployment broadly of our tech. It's just slow, but that's the nature of this industry. Right. And before we dig in even deeper on the business, for listeners who you know maybe aren't as familiar as yourself, or I have some familiarity with it, of kind of the emissions footprint of something like heating in Canada or the US or even globally, how do you kind of quantify that for people or give people a sense of where the main kind of problem areas are in the industry and what the scope of it of the problem is? Sure. So if you want to look at the addressable market. of the emissions that are generated in Canada come from this scale of gas-fired appliance. So 20% is a pretty sizable number. It's about 12% in the United States, which sounds like less, but when you look at population density, 12% of anything in the United States is a pretty big number. (laughs) Yeah, and the actual emissions footprint too. Yeah, exactly. And then globally, it's about 7%. Once again, it's a lot of us out, it's about, you know, 8 billion people on the planet. So, you know, 7% of that is a pretty sizable number. So that, that's the addressable market that we're looking at. And we're also looking at it from the perspective of asking the question, where is the heating industry going? If you look at civilization from the dawn of civilization to present day, we have never relied on a single form of energy to derive heat. So to say that we're going to rely on a single form of energy on a global scale is problematic. So we've chosen to take the path to say that at least a portion of this industry will be hydrogen-based. It makes a lot of sense from my perspective because a lot of the infrastructure is already there. The changeover isn't as intensive. And, it's, and I think, if we once again, if we want to talk about rapid decarbonization, from a heating perspective, hydrogen really makes a lot of sense. So that's the direction that we're pointing our company in to say, we're going to evolve with that industry to support the transition into hydrogen. And for one, when you say the infrastructure already exists, you kind of are referencing that pipelines for things like natural gas can be repurposed for hydrogen. Correct, yeah. So there's some of the new PE piping that's been laid in the infrastructure can handle hydrogen. Hydrogen presents some unique issues. It does have a cryogenic effect at high pressure, so there is some issues, but past the regulator in your house, because it's low pressure, you take You know, the pipeline out on the street is high pressure coming into your house. It's low pressure. And at that low pressure, because it's only half a pound of pressure through your home, 
the changeout isn't as impactful as it would be from an infrastructure. So once again, that, that whole changeover, I think, could be a lot easier than trying to run a new electrical grid to be able to handle the energy intensity required to keep buildings warm, especially during the winter months. Right. Yeah. I mean, you'll definitely need some combination of a variety of resources for a long time. Yeah. Once again, it's never our opinion. It'll never be one. Electricity is necessary. It will suit the needs for heat pump technologies and other solutions, but it can't be the only solution. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, you've got lots of other great technology like heat pumps that are taking off in some areas and by all means, people should install those, but you're still going to have lots of gas presence and then perhaps in the future hydrogen presence for a long time. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and the retrofit industry is difficult too, especially in the commercial sector. Heat pump technology for the commercial retrofit market is problematic. The tech hasn't really developed far enough for that specific market. It's great for single detached homes in some instances, in a lot of instances, but in the commercial, the large, like the old high rise buildings, the commercial properties, anything built prior to, you know, 1990, we tend to look at the thing that provides the heat rather than looking at the envelope that contains the heat. And the blame goes to the emitter of the GHGs, not the fact that you've got this leaky old envelope that can't retain its heat very well. It seems like a 30% efficient envelope. Yeah, I live in, in the walk-up that I live in in New York, we, or the landlord actually just installed a new natural gas boiler. So I was a little dismayed that there wasn't another solution, but it probably speaks to what you're saying, where that's just kind of the path of least resistance is to continue using the same technology. We're not there yet. We'll get there. We'll get there. But once again, it's small steps. It's unfortunate, but right now we just need to start with making just small steps because it's elite, It's an actionable item we can take towards that decarbonization. The worst thing we can do is nothing. Right. And so what is the scale of most of the kind of appliances and places that you are already installed and working with or targeting? So I'll start with the BTU load and there's probably going to, maybe some people won't know what that is, but I have to start there and then I can give the comparison. Uh, so a gas-fired appliance is run on BTU load inputs. And that's basically saying the amount of energy I can put into the appliance equals the amount of energy I can get out of the appliance to heat my building. Now, that's based on, in the States, BTUs. In Canada, it's, you know, it's kilowatts and gigajoules. And Canadians are eternally confused with which measurement system to use. So for this conversation, we'll deal with BTUs. So we operate between 250,000 BTUs and 1.5 million BTUs. And that means places like hotels, small hospitals, recreation centers, aggregated residential complexes with centralized heating systems like your walk-up apartment in New York, some small-scale industrial applications, anything with a centralized heat plant in around those scale is kind of right in our wheelhouse with our current tech. And what does the kind of efficiency on the carbon dioxide removal component look like? On average, we're hitting about a benchmark with our current models of about a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Now that may seem small, but it's a start, right? Once again, it's a start. We have a new model that we're hoping to have out early next year that should be able to hit about a 50% mark. And then we have a roadmap to get a 100%, but that's probably three or four years down the road for us. Got it. Yeah, I mean, even 50% over 20, that's a market improvement. And 20% over zero is a market improvement, so. <laughs> exactly. Something is better than nothing. Well, especially when we when you look at our business model, like unlike a typical piece of heating equipment, 
we pay our customers back. Like you essentially loan us the money to install this equipment in your building. And then we convert the carbon into a component that's used in various industries. And we really like making soap. So that's what we're making right now. We also do fertilizer and other detergents. So we want, we sell that. And then we pay back some of that money back to our customers. So you're actually getting a cash rebate from us to pay back for this equipment. You're not going to get that from a boiler. That boiler that they put in your walk-up, I mean, that's that's a liability now. It's got 20 years of life expectancy. And when it's done, you have to go out and buy another one. Where in our case, you buy our system. And we the analogy that we like to use is urban mining. So we basically, we enter into an agreement with you where we say, look, you're emitting GHGs into the atmosphere. We're going to divert some of that into a commodity that we can create at your building. We're going to go off and turn it into something. We're going to sell that something. And then whatever we make, we're going to share with you. So we're mining this, we're making money from this, and then we're giving that back. So you get that return on the investment. And it's pretty quick. I mean, it's, you know, three to five years, which is unlike most, once again, unlike most equipment, usually you buy something, it's yours, it's, it does what it does. And when it wears out, you buy, you go and buy another one. That's interesting. That's kind of the type of business model that I've heard people talk about and kind of other climate verticals, whether it might be something like carbon credits where, you know, you have folks that are trying to go out to farmers, for instance, and say, we'll provide you the feed additives that are going to reduce the methane emissions from your cows. And like, maybe we can get that to a point where we can pay you to do this with your livestock as opposed to asking you to pay it. But this is kind of the first instance I'm hearing of that already being the business model that you're operating with. The world we live in is an economic one. If you can make an economic argument in favor of something, you're going to have a heck of a lot of an easier time selling it than you would if it's just saving the planet from utter disaster of climate change. It's bizarre, but that's the world we live in. For some reason, that hasn't grabbed people the last 30 years. People keep trying, you know, God bless them, but that's what we try to do here is integrate a little bit of both with the economic rationale as well. I'm always a glass half full kind of guy. I, I believe in the power of positivity. I believe that we can change habits using positive reinforcement rather than scaring the hell out of people. <laughs> Fear is a great motivator, but it's very short term. But if you can find pathways that reward you for taking steps in the right direction, that is far more sustainable, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And I mean, paying people to install your device is a great example. And before I forget, well, actually, first, let me ask, you know, for folks that are listening, kind of how would you describe how the technology actually works? And, you know, I by no means am 100% up to speed on that either. So I'm curious, kind of the, explain it to me like I'm, I'm 15, maybe not five, but. <laughs> it's a pretty simple process overall. So imagine, we'll use your building again, because we've referred to it a few times. So it's nice and easy. So in your building, you have a boiler, right? And every time you need heat, that boiler is going to turn on, it's going to heat the water and circulate that hot water or that steam through your building. And then every time that need is met, it turns off, right? So and every time that boiler turns on, it's emitting emissions to atmosphere. Off of that boiler, there'll be a pipe where the flue gas, the post-combusted products are vented to atmosphere. This being, of course, the carbon dioxide that we're concerned about. So what our system does is we attach to the vent pipe on your boiler. Now we don't interrupt 100%, the reason being is for safety. The last thing I want to hear is that we get a phone call at three o'clock in the morning because it's, you know, <laughs> mid-December and you don't have any heat because of something that we've done. So we divert a portion of that flue gas through our system. We interface that with a, a chemical. The chemical absorbs the CO2. What's interesting about that absorption process is that it's exothermic in nature. So we combine the waste heat 
from your gas-fired appliance. We combine it with the exothermic heat of the chemistry, and then we store that energy in a vessel in the unit. And that energy then is used to offset the amount of gas that boiler or that hot water heating system will need for any given demand. And actually about 75% of the emissions that we reduce actually come from that economizing action, that, that act of reducing the amount of energy needed to meet the same energy demands for the building. So once that process is complete, once that chemical is spent and it's now been converted into a carbonate, that carbonate then is collected. And we tie that in with the fact that in most commercial settings or most aggregated residential settings like your building, you should have somebody coming by. Some cases I've seen where they come by every day and some cases they come by once a month. The average is about every two weeks. So we say, look, if you have a technician coming to your building every two weeks to do a preventative maintenance check to make sure your system's running properly, we ask them to say, look, you're going there anyway. Let us pay you to do this collection process for us and do some preventative maintenance to make sure not only is our system running properly, but your heating system is running properly as well and recharge it with new chemicals. So think of it as a Culligan water delivery service or a water salt, a softening service or something where somebody's coming in delivering a good and hauling away a waste. That's kind of the same business model that we're offering. We're just piggybacking it onto an existing service for commercial buildings. So that cycle just goes on. As I said, we're kind of an urban mining platform where this system just captures that CO2, converts a low value chemical into a high value chemical, and then they collect it, they stage it, and then we keep it within the region where it's captured to convert it into products that can be used locally. The last thing we want is, you know, is for us to be capturing carbon in, say, Tampa, and then having it shipped all the way back to Calgary and have it turned into a bar of soap and then send that bar of soap to I don't know, Uruguay or somewhere else in the world where they need a bar of soap. Because I'm pretty sure the carbon footprint associated with that would probably be significantly higher than, you know, just buying one from your local supplier. So, so that's kind of at a high level, high level how, how that works. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, we kind of started the conversation talking about how traditionally the industry focuses on efficiency as their only answer to, you know, how we're going to, how it's going to reduce its emissions footprint. But, you know, a system like yours is a good example of still very focused on improving efficiency through kind of recapturing some of that waste heat, but also then integrating additional carbon capture on top of it to enhance the amount of impact that you're making. And when you kind of forecast that you'll be able to get to closer to kind of a 50% emissions reduction potential in the future. Is most of that gain then going to be coming from the carbon capture side of the technology or also additional gains in efficiency? It's both increasing the volume of pearl ash that's being collected on site, as well as increasing the efficiencies of the the heat recovery. Mechanical rooms are really inefficient. It's funny, like I can go into a mechanical room today that's only been active for maybe a year and compare it to a boiler that was installed in 1923. And the changes are really small. It's really, really small. Not only that, but they're very leaky. These are very hot rooms. We vent a lot of heat, even with high efficiency appliances, we're still venting a lot of usable heat to atmosphere, even though they lay claim to being 98% efficient, you know, 98% efficient lists in a lab setting may not be the efficiency gain you see in your building. And I think it comes down to education too. Like 
if you have a mid-efficient boiler, I'll give you this, this is a great example. So if you, the boiler you had in your building was a mid-efficient boiler. Now, but when I say mid, what percentage do you think that hits? Mid 50s, right? You'd think 50% of 50 to 60%, because that's what it's the word, mid, it's middle, right? You're saying between zero and 100, it's mid, therefore it's middle, mid. When in actuality, a mid-efficient appliance is somewhere north of 80% efficient, between 80 to 87% efficient. So then when you go and you buy a high-efficiency boiler, you think, I'm closer to 100. Well, you are, but not as much as you think. You're actually only gaining about a 10% margin in improvements to the efficiencies of the appliance. So that spread isn't as big as you think. And that's providing you're able to even hit that 80% mark in efficiency. The reality is more like you're probably getting a 5 to 7% gain in efficiency because of the piping and the envelope and the construction. It means that that high-efficiency boiler that you've installed is never going to see that high-efficiency mark. So you end up spending a considerably larger amount of money to get a marginal gain in overall efficiency. So a little bit of a plug here, and, and I realize <laughs> this is coming across as a plug, but it's not meant as a plug. You could take a system like ours, put it on a mid-efficient boiler, and get the same, if not better, efficiency increases on the heating platform without having to spend as much money. And you'd end up with the same result. Not only would you get the same result from an efficiency gain, but that money you would spend would get paid back to you. So think of it, if you will, like a catalytic converter on an internal combustion engine. It's the sort of the same process. It makes a lot more sense. But once again, I'm obviously I have a very biased, biased take on this. So take it, take it with grain of salt. That's a dangerous analogy to use right now because every catalytic converter within 50 miles of where my parents live here in the Bay Area is being stolen. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's funny when you put gold and platinum and stuff in them, it's funny how that uh, that happens. Yeah, and rhodium and other stuff that's, I don't know, maybe even more valuable. Yeah, yeah and everything else. Yeah, there's none of that in our carbon action. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the pearl ash because I like the analogy of you all are kind of doing this urban mining where you're mining CO2 that would otherwise be emitted into the atmosphere and is ostensibly a bad thing and turning it into something that's valuable and that you can sell and make money and ultimately remit some of that money back to folks that you're working with as well. What is kind of pearl ash and what is it useful for? Yeah, pearl ash or potassium carbonate is used in multiple industries. It's used in soaps and detergents. It's used in textiles. It's used in pharmaceuticals. It's used as a additive for the feedstock for dairy farms to increase milk production. It's used in biofuels. It's used in indirectly for the production of lithium carbonate for batteries. We often refer to it as the Swiss Army knife of chemicals because it's used in so many different things. And originally, our business model was just a commodity play. Like we just wanted to sell carbonate because there was that arbitrage play of commodities. One will always be worth more because there's an energy input required to create it. It's not a mine good. But we couldn't find anybody that would buy it because we were only producing small quantities. So this is where we started going into consumer goods was because, well, if you can't convince the leaders of these industries to buy your commodity, you have to become the leader to make these products, to show them that it can be done. So we're starting with soap because it's a tangible good. But actually, I've got some here behind me, some fertilizer that we're working on, you know, laundry detergents. There's some textile applications that we're exploring with a company in the U.S. And uh, 
yeah, it's quite broad. That was going to be another question I would ask is why the choice to go consumer to start, but it does make sense that people that would want to buy this at a commodity scale are looking for that commodity scale. And so to get to that point, some financing from consumer to scale up a bit makes sense. Part of the important factor of things that we do here is is that tangible goods story, the angle, right? And being able to present something that people get. If you're at a party and you're, you know, you're hanging out with your friends and you start talking about carbon capture and some of them kind of maybe know what it is, but then, you know, what does that mean? And you start talking about biofuels and concrete, that's a tough conversation to have to make it exciting. But if you take and you convert that, you're talking about carbon capture in a way where it's related to things that you use every day, it's an easier conversation to have. It's a tangible good. It engages people to start talking about what carbon capture can actually relate to. And I've said this before uh, in other conversations, that is not to discount the importance of large-scale CCUS and the work being done by like, you know, carbon upcycling technologies and carbon cure and uh, carbon engineering where they're doing large scale, but they're converting into things that are difficult to talk about in general settings. So we're the, I don't know, for lack of better phrase, uh, the arm candy of the carbon capture world, because we provide, you know, kind of sexy products that are easier to digest. Yeah. And I've called it kind of like a Trojan horse before. I have a friend who makes potting soil that integrates biochar and doesn't have any peat for it. So for a variety of reasons, it's better for the environment and can even have some carbon reduction qualities. But I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, people love having houseplants around nowadays. This is like the Trojan horse for getting people to talk about biochar because otherwise it's like just gloss right over. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's tangible. Everybody can talk about plants. Everybody can talk about potting soil. They like that stuff. Right. So it's an easy conversation to have. The moment you say concrete, (laughs) you've lost a few people right and the fertilizer application could be interesting too because even though that one's not necessarily as directly appreciable as a bar of soap in your shower that one also has additional emissions reduction potential i can imagine because the process i mean the traditional process for creating fertilizer talk about something that's been around for a hundred years and hasn't changed much but that's pretty emissions intensive too it is yeah it definitely is we're just dipping our toes into that market now and it's interesting and how's the consumer reception of the product been too? Have you seen a lot of you know interest and demand and people getting really excited about this stuff or are there still some confusion or concern from some folks? No, it's been good. People get it. They seem to pick it up. We have a following. We have people that uh, we have repeat customers, you know, are trying to, you know, how Grateful Dead had the deadheads. We're trying to figure out, uh, you know, what do we call our followers? And we, we haven't found anything that's, you know, kind of appropriate yet. But yeah, no, it's good. People get it. When you hand them a bar of soap, they... All of the conversations have all been very positive. I will say the most common question we do get asked about our soap is what happens to the CO2 after you use it? That is by far the most common question. And the answer is it stays permanently sequestered. It does not get re-released into the atmosphere. How does that work exactly? Comparison I could the best use is if you have you ever been to Utah, you know, the salt flats in Utah? Yeah, I'm familiar. So during the winter and spring runoff, those lakes become shallow salt lakes. They become full of sodium chloride, right? But it dissolves in water. And then over the course of the late spring and early summer, that water evaporates and you're left with salt, right? The salt doesn't evaporate into the atmosphere. It precipitates back out as a mineral. Potassium carbonate is no different. When you use it in a bar of soap, it's suspended in that bar. And then when you wash your skin, 
it goes back into solution and then it carries off into the waterway and then out into our riverways. And, and then if the water does get evaporated, it precipitates as a mineral. And you've probably already seen that if you've ever been for a walk along a riverbed. If you look at the stones along the shore, you'll see like a white crust. And that's either calcium or magnesium carbonate that collects on those stones. Well, in our case, it's potassium carbonate. So it's the same components. Not, it doesn't bioaccumulate. It's not toxic. It's readily acceptable in nature. So that's sort of the same principal idea in terms of how that CO2 is permanently sequestered. Yeah, it's a great story because, you know, that's a question I get a lot from whether it's readers or listeners. People are always, you know, there's a lot of people that work in climate-related companies and fields and for them kind of they're just interested to keep up with other companies but then there's folks that are just coming at it more from a consumer angle and are interested in that question of like what can i do to support these technologies or to reduce my own emissions footprint and this is a great example of something that directly helps you expand when people buy products and that reduces emissions from all kinds of different places across the world so yeah i love that story yeah it's good we're seeing a lot of uptick and you know it's not perfect it's far from perfect there's a lot of things that we're trying to overcome, like, you know, it's the whole everything from scope one through scope three emissions that we're addressing, but we're moving towards something and we're doing something and it is having an impact. So and as we develop our products, our technology, it will continue to improve to reduce emissions. But once again, it's not perfect now, but we're getting there. Yeah. Scrubbing with soap to uh, scrub CO2 from heating appliances. I like that. I like it. Can I coin that? Yeah, please, by all means, take it. We did kind of all just skirt around, you know, the challenges question broadly, and we've talked about some of them, obviously, throughout this call. But, you know, you all just raised a seed round, so congrats on that. And Thank it's you. great to see that you've got some capital to, to continue developing. But what are the kind of the key challenges or perhaps the inflection points that you see yourself hitting in the next six months, 12 months that, that you're really keenly focused on? Well, that answer keeps changing. I uh, know. So I'll give you an answer now. And if you came back to me two months from now, it'd probably be a little bit different. I, right now, I think the biggest challenge for us is market adoption. As I mentioned earlier, heating industry is very, very slow to adopt anything new. So I think that's the biggest challenge that we're facing right now is getting people on board that we're doing something new. We're doing something that is meaningful and makes sense economically. So that's our biggest challenge right now. If you would ask me, oh, say a year ago, I would say regulations was probably the biggest issue because you have certain code requirements that you have to be able to meet to be able to install these systems, uh, which means you need standards associated with them. So we've gone past that hurdle and worked very closely with Intertech to be able to apply standards to our systems so that these are safe. And now it's market adoption. It's putting a round peg in a square hole. It's a bit challenging, but people, they'll get there. It's like EVs, right? I mean, there was a time when EVs were, were looked at as a passing phase or a gimmick or something that wasn't sustainable. And now I can't go anywhere without seeing a Tesla or some other manufacturer that's making EVs. Like To me, that seems like a foregone conclusion that that's the direction the automotive industry is heading. So we're hoping you know, that that's the direction that we'll see where maybe it'll be mandated. Maybe it'll be a case where it's if you have to have natural gas installed in your building, you will require some sort of emissions control device. That process, obviously. I was going to ask about that because there's certainly, I can imagine the regulatory headwinds or just the difficulty of dealing with permitting, siting, installation across, especially different geographies. But I was also curious whether there are already any regulatory kind of tailwinds from 
whether it's regulations in, or new rules in Canada, or there's all this kind of new talk about policy in the U.S. And, you know, in some industries, there's starting to be mandated controls on things. It's kind of usually for the more immediately problematic stuff like methane emissions. But do you see that coming to natural gas heating appliances soon? Absolutely. We're already seeing signs of it now. I mean, they came out with the Clean Energy Act here in Canada a number of years ago where you couldn't buy mid-efficient appliance anymore. Uh, you had to buy high-efficiency furnaces for the single detached market. And now I think it's 2024, 2025, you'll no longer be able to purchase mid-efficient boilers and heating appliances. They all have to be high-efficiency appliances. But once again, if you're still using natural gas, you're still producing emissions. So I think it's inevitable that you will see further restrictions in terms of what buildings can, but there needs to be more people working on this problem because it's a big issue. You look at any of the articles that are coming out around emissions controls and the stances that municipalities are taking, they're only focusing on new buildings or passive envelope buildings. They're not addressing the retrofit market and they're not addressing the retrofit market because that's a challenge, right? How do you take something like the Empire State Building and make it net zero? Beats me. <laughs> so, so this is where we need, we really need more people to be working on this problem because we're all, I guess in a way it's kind of nice because that's the way I see the carbon markets is very collaborative, very transparent. We're all trying to solve a big problem together. So we'll get there. I'm convinced that we'll be able to save ourselves from shooting ourselves in the foot, but it's going to take all of us working together to solve this problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely encouraging I mean, I certainly haven't been in the space as long as you, but it does feel like there's unique momentum, at least in some respect, with a lot of capital being available to companies in the space, a lot of people interested in working for said companies, and starting to be more policy pressure from people getting serious, and whether it's tax credits or dedicated dollars or, or what have you, or other kind of restrictions on what emitters are allowed to do, it's coming together. Yeah, I think it, it just needs to be realistic, too, because some of the solutions that I'm seeing that are being proposed are not achievable. Like the timelines, I realize that we need to rapidly decarbonize. No, I truly understand that. I understand the importance of it. But when I hear municipalities saying they're just going to turn off natural gas in five years, like I don't see how they could do that. I, it's not realistic. It's not a practical way of addressing an issue, in my opinion. I think people fail to understand sometimes or have the perspective that more than 80% of primary energy generation across the world is still comes from fossil fuels. And by all means, we should make every effort to reduce that number. But even in a scenario where you make rapid inroads in reducing that number, you'll probably still need some kind of available backup supply from something like natural gas for a long time. And in the best case scenario, you're not using it much, but it's going to be there. Once again, particularly in the retrofit market, you got a leaky envelope. It's a huge challenge. It's a massive, massive challenge. Absolutely. Let's talk about other technologies, perhaps a few examples that you're particularly excited about or companies. What uh, what comes to mind? Sure. Large scale CCUS, I think, is in continuing to prove. I think they still got a little ways to go before, you know, for the economics start to make a lot of sense. But they're doing some um, organic metal framework. It's a new membrane technology that is allowing for uh, energy efficient means of creating hydrogen gas for the future hydrogen economy. Heat pump technology is continuing to develop. I'm very hopeful that they'll be able to create uh, systems that are both economical and efficient for places that, you know, do get really cold during the winter months. Yeah, there's a couple of good companies out there. Uh, there's some good lithium extraction technologies, uh, Summit Nanotech, which is uh, 
cleaning up the lithium industry. I'm very excited about, uh, I know the CEO very well. She's making leaps and bounds with cleaning up that industry. So it's cool, right? We're, we're kind of feel like all of us are at that inflection point where the internet was, you know, back when I was a kid, when we started talking about, you know, I well, actually maybe wasn't a kid. I guess I would have been in my 20s, I guess, when the internet started coming about. And um, that counts as a kid. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> by my standards today, I'm in my 50s. So yeah, I guess so. I think we're, we're that stage, that Wild West stage of a developing market that's exciting. It's hopeful. And we're writing the rules. We're creating these pathways that never existed before. So to be able to be a part of that, I think is, yeah, it's pretty cool. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that. And uh, before I forget, I also want to close by also giving you the opportunity to, you know, for folks that either want to buy the soap, where should they look? And who else might you want to hear from? One question in particular came to mind earlier when you were talking, it's like, what are the right types of stakeholders to connect someone like yourself to who might be a potential client on the heating side? I believe in inspiring trades to stand up and let their voice be heard as a solution provider for the clean tech sector. Plumbers and electricians and carpenters and millwrights and that type of trade they typically are the people that implement the ideas, but they are never looked at as the people who can create the ideas. And I'm a plumber, really, at the end of the day, I'm still a plumber. And I've been able to, I think, have some sort of a positive impact on at least, very least, drawing attention to problem. But there's more people out there like me. And I've met a few of them. And I, I don't think we hear enough of those voices at the table in terms of how do we address this massive problem. So that'd be the only thing I, I would ask if we could give a shout out to all of the trades out there that have an idea and think they have something that's cool that could help reduce our impact on this tiny little speck of blue. I think they need to be heard. I think they need a, an avenue to express it and attempt to explore it. Yeah, no, I love that perspective. There's so much focus on founders and venture capitalists and policymakers when we talk about things like climate technologies and reversing climate change. But yeah, I mean, it's the unsung kind of no glory jobs that are also massively impactful, whether it be folks on the HVAC side or... Absolutely. Plumbers, electricians. Yeah. There's all sorts of opportunities out there. Yeah. And we're going to need many more folks with those skills to, you know, take heat pumps, for example, if you want to install a massive amount of those in the next 10, 20 years, someone's got to do that work. And hopefully that there's people out there thinking hard about how to train more folks for that and train them in a way that they think like you. Well, maybe there's a better way to do things. Like maybe even at the core of what a heat pump is, maybe there's an electrician out there that has a better heat pump. They have a more efficient means of creating that heat pump. Or installing that heat pump because economics once again economics matter and if it's just engineers solving problems that engineers are incredibly smart people but they're horrible at creating economic solutions to things <laughs> yeah and i say that with love because i have engineers that, that work i work with so i, I say that tongue-in-cheek yeah no that's a that's a great perspective yeah we're already talking to a couple of boiler manufacturers in the u.s so the folks that are making heating appliances are constantly looking for ways of looking for where is their industry going and we think we've got a pretty cool solution so having more meaningful conversations with those industries i think is incredibly valuable to us and to them large commercial property owners are looking for ways of doing so quickly and economically to decarbonize or reduce carbon 
from their portfolios. So those would be interesting conversations to have. And we've had a few. We're connected with a number of them now, but there's tons more out there. So we certainly welcome any exploratory conversations. And then also, you know, from the circular economy standpoint, the people that are interested in using recycled carbon in their products, because that's really ultimately the crux of it all. If we don't have a place to put the carbon, you know, the business model doesn't work very well. So we have to work with uh, with industry partners that see value in applying recycled carbon in their goods, in the things that they're making. So that would be also very important for us to explore opportunities with. And uh, for people listening who want to buy the soap, where's the best place to do that? Cleto2.ca. We're just launching uh, with a distributor in the U.S. to work within some of these regions that we're branching out into, uh, Minneapolis, Oregon, and hopefully California this year. But right now, it's largely an e-commerce platform. So yeah, that's probably the best place to go. Brilliant. We'll make sure that folks have the link for that. Jason, thanks so much for being on. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.